and welcome to Hoof on the Till, our weekly look at all things racing. Helen Thomas and the mighty Max Personal with you. And Max, what a great weekend of racing, not just right around Australia, in both Melbourne on Friday night, the Group 1 Moyer Stakes, but also a couple of fantastic races, the Metrop and the Epsom Handicap at Royal Randwick on Saturday. And of course, just for good measure, Max, I know you'd love to be in Longchamp for the running of the 2023 Prix de Arc de don't jump to conclusions, Helen. No, I would not want to be in Paris for the Arc de Triomphe. I would want to be at Royal Randwick for the Epsom Metrop. This is a great day's racing. It's one of the best days racing uh, of the year, of the year, compares with anything you've got in Melbourne. And I think, too, what makes it just that little bit extra special this year, we've got um, Rachel King riding just fine. Now, uh, you you look at Rachel, a pom. Just fine, a pom. Just what is it that Gay Waterhouse does to really bring the best out in this people? Waves of magic wand over them. I'm intrigued by it. And I believe we've got Rachel online. We certainly have. And Rachel, welcome to Hoof. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Rachel, uh, again, getting back to Gay Waterhouse and the effect that she has on jockeys. When you arrived here, uh, did you come to Australia with any expectation that you would be riding possibly one of the shortest price favourites ever in the Metropolitan? Uh, definitely not, no. <laughs> um, it was probably a, a dream, but, yeah, it's, uh, I didn't probably think it could it could be a reality at that time, but uh, very grateful to be in this position. What does she? What is the ingredient that brings the best out in jockeys? She said she zooms in on them. Now, how has she zoomed in on you? <laughs> she certainly does, yeah. Look, she... Um, she was an incredible mentor to me. She was, you know, she was like a, a mother figure, figure to me. She was everything um, when I was an apprentice there and, and still is now. You know, we have a, a really good friendship um, as much as we do a sort of good w- working relationship. And I, I think that's very important. You know, I have, you know, so much trust and, and faith um, in Gay and, and her operation I think most of the time it's uh, it's the feelings uh, the other way as well. You know, she's she's uh, sort of built me up to be to be the jockey I am today, and I, I definitely couldn't have you know done it without her. And it's uh, it's fantastic to you know not only be a do my apprenticeship there, but continue to ride you know good winners for her and and get these nice opportunities in in Group Ones. You must have had a sound foundation at home because look. You sit sweet on a horse, you stand out in the field, and whereabouts did you, you get your initial training? Um, yes, yeah, so I was always sort of brought up in racing, around racing, more so uh, jumps racing, actually, and Dad um, used to ride a little bit over jumps, just sort of as an amateur, and a bit of fun, um, and my first race rides were over jumps, and that's sort of, that's all I ever wanted to do was be a jumps jockey. I had absolutely no interest in flat racing at the time. Um I was sort of mainly, I think, looking back on it now because I just didn't know anything about it. I'd, I'd only ever watched jump racing, been involved in jump racing, and that's all I wanted to do. So I was, uh, yeah, one of those mad jump jockeys to start with, um, then realised I obviously probably wasn't going to grow a lot and I wasn't really going to get any heavier. So I uh, did end up changing my mind and, and going down the flat route. But there's been so many people that have been sort of influential in my career, um, obviously sort of dad to start with. and. The first uh, trainer I ever had a ride for was was Adrian Maguire, who was a absolute superstar jumps jockey in England and Ireland. Um, to to have you know my first couple of race rides for someone like that 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 experience was incredible. 
Rachel, for a quote, mad jumps jockey, I'm just just using your words there. How did you get that touch for pace? Because you know, you're out in front, particularly in staying races. Um, you know, you've, you've got to have a certain timing. What what goes through your mind when you when you're leading on one, particularly? Like the Sydney Cup last year with the with Knight's order, how do you gauge it? Look, I think obviously, I mean, working for Gay because of her, her a lot of her horses are up on the speed. You do get a good feeling for pace. Um, I think it's a combination of probably what I've learned from England and Australia. Like when I came here, I'd I'd never ridden um, track work to the clock or anything like that, so I didn't I didn't know exactly what times I was running, but I but I had. I feel like I had a good feel for a horse um, and just, you know, in England, that's the way we learn is, is just by feel is there's no stopwatches. So you've got to be able to really feel how the horse going, not sort of counting in your head. Um, so I think that, that the combination of the two sort of different uh, racing industries um, definitely helps in the, in the long run. And, you know, I, I learned from sort of riding more gallops up hills and things like that. And, Obviously, you know, if you get it slightly wrong at the bottom, it's gonna, it's gonna show when you get to the top of the gallop. So it's um, it's very different riding work over there. But I think um, having that experience definitely helped, and and then sort of refining it, I guess, by learning how to ride sort of to the clock as well. Here, it's uh, been a, a good combination that I think has has worked in the long run. Just fine as one. His only two starts in Australia. What sort of a, a feel has he given you? Have you had much to do with him? Um, obviously, yeah, I've just ridden him once race day and I've had a couple of gallops on him at home. I, I do go into the stable um, sort of once a week. So he's a very sort of unassuming kind of horse. That's probably the best way to put him. He, he just goes about his work. Um, nothing worries him. He just sort of does what he's told, basically. He makes a, a jockey's life very easy and he travels well and, and he seems to, you know, have a good turn of foot as well. So he's he's probably every jockey's dream in, in that kind of way. And he's, uh, you know, sometimes these imports can take a few preps to really settle in and adapt to the Australian way of going. But he seems to be one that has just really hit the ground running. And, and that can happen as well. You know, they can really start to excel when, when they get here. And I, I think he's that kind of horse. Rachel, what is it that's different about Australia for these horses. I mean, you hear people like yourself, like, you know, trainers like Gay and and others that have got the imports say they just improve when they've had a little bit of time on the Australian tracks in the Australian climate. Why? Why is that? I'm not really sure. I don't know if it's sort of one particular thing or a combination. I mean, I guess, you know, it's like us, if a change of scenery can be do the world of good, you know, and maybe that's that's a bit of it. The climate's different. Um pace of race you know that that sort of can help as well um some horses will prefer you know the the sort of the pace that we go in australia rather than than england as such and and some imports also you know on the other hand have come here and and not gone as well and not probably shown what they can do um when they're in europe but you know when you when you get one that that does like it and does adapt well like just fine then it's uh that you can see a, a real improvement in their form Rachel, just um, I'll change the the point of attack here and remind you that the last time we travelled in a lift together at Royal Randwick, you rode a 100 to 1 winner. Now, I'm offering my services on Saturday because you're riding a 100 to 1 chance. If it gets a start, it's a reserve now political debate in the Epsom. A very light fee. I will wait and go up 
or down in the lift with you, just for, let's say, the odds to 20 bucks. What do you think? <laughs> that, that sounds like a great idea. I'll, um, I'll let you know what time I'll be at the races and we'll, we'll make sure that happens. <laughs> Rachel, good luck with both the lift ride with Max and also both <laughs> those rides in those two races, if in fact the young So You Think son gets into the Epsom, but particularly on Just Fine as he and maybe even you head to the Melbourne Cup this year. Thank you very much. Yeah, hopefully we can um, keep going towards Melbourne. That would be great. Well, Max, Rachel certainly sounds very upbeat about Just Fine in the Metrop, as do you, and the Epsom, of course, is another Group 1 race. And then there's the Gimcrack and the Breeders' Plate, the first two races for two-year-olds in New South Wales this, for this season, and the flight stakes. But you're really focused on another race, the Premier Stakes, because you think the winner of this race is going to upstage everybody at Randwick on Saturday. No, well, Helen, think about it. Is is it quite a remarkable horse, an intriguing horse? Um, I'm not going to mention the c word at, at this stage, but uh, I would say he's the the best performed horse racing at Randwick today. And I think the Premier Stakes for the think about it involvement, I think it overshadows the Epsom and Metrop, which have been going for hundreds of years. But look, it's just the trend in racing, but. Why can't we just get into the depth of think about it? Because we've got a trainer, Joe Pride, online. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning. Joe, uh, the first thing that hit me about think about it is uh, your synthetic hoof filler is off. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that is a tick. So what's happened there? Yeah, so it was at the end of last preparation. He, he was given a very long prep last prep, seven runs, and it went from January right through to the Shradbroke. And we're just running out of foot um, for one of the better term uh, by the end of the prep and we had to use a bit of synthetic hoof filler just to get a shoe on him that would would sort of sit comfortably and um, uh, for those who don't know it's sort of almost like a sort of a softer sort of fiberglass sort of stuff that that just fills in gaps in the foot um, so that you can get a uh, a nailed on shoe in a, as I say in a good position but it's um happy to r- report this preparation we haven't haven't needed it and you're right it is a tick you know you don't you want the, ho- the hoof to be natural and that's what we're working with now Think about it just keeps on getting better. Uh, as he, he went into the Stradbroke, figures weren't that flash. You, you, we, you know, weights and measures men said, well, he, he's going to be tested. He won easy. Now, can he improve on that? I would think so. I mean, he's, he's by So You Think, um, who's a stay in, in my experience and looking at everybody else's is the same. Uh, I think the, the horses get better with age. Now, this horse has only had two racing preps and 10 starts. So looking at him, he's a very slow horse to mature. I would struggle to um, to believe that he wouldn't be a better horse in these next couple of preparations as he gets older, as we stretch him out over a little bit further as well. And, um, yeah, the manner in which he wins, I guess it's hard for the for the punters and the ratings guys to keep up with him because he he's only been able to, as any horse can, beat what's in front of him. And going through the grades, you know, people will look back and go, he's only beat this horse and that horse, but all you can do is win. And that's what he's just managed to do at you know, basically every start of his life. Looking at his two recent barrier trials to, to get him ready for this race, uh, he's going to settle back in the field as he does, but with speed tests like the Premier Stakes um, on the rail, uh, any special riding instructions to Sam Clipperton? No, I had a chat to Sam about him this morning, actually, and he rides always very confidently and he rides him to keep him out of trouble. He's he's actually led on him one day, uh, very, very versatile. So we will be riding um, 
phrase you often hear, but I think it's 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 um it's spot on. We'll be riding our own race. We won't be too worried about what the others are doing. He'll jump well, as he always does. He'll be put in a position where he's travelling comfortably. I'd anticipate that's probably midfield, maybe just ahead of midfield, and the rest can do what they want around him. Um, you know, hopefully not interferers, but but you know they can they can position themselves wherever they think they need to be. But Sam will just keep this horse balanced, comfortable, and that way he'll be in a good rhythm, good breathing pattern, and and that will bring out the best performance possible from the horse. You've got a bit of Everest form uh, in your stable. Private Eye uh, went so well last year, was beaten, but uh, beaten uh, you know, under the best possible circumstances. Um, uh, a recent winner, you've got him going going well again. How would you compare the two? Yeah, very different horses to compare. Well, he Private Eye is my, um, my solid rock. Um, been there before. Um, performed at the level he needs to before uh, horse who who I can sort of he's the backbone of my chances the chance this year because he's um he's 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 super reliable once you've got him in form and and he'll be suited by what's going to eventuate on Everest Day and the other horse is just too hard to compare him to because he's um we ha- as yet haven't found his ceiling and um, that's a can be a strength and it can be a weakness so we're about to find out which one of the two it is. Um, you know, the, the, if he wasn't able to win or put in a performance as good as a win on Saturday, I'd be pretty disappointed because he's not going to measure up to the Everest horses if he can't um, perform against um, this group of horses, which are, to be fair to them, there's only one other horse with a slot. They're not the A-grade sprinters. They're trying to earn their way into the race. So he needs to um, – I'd like to think he could be dominant over them. Well, Joe, you've got a couple of – you've had a couple of solid rocks in your stable, haven't you? Not the least of them being – uh, that uh, a magnificent horse, Eduardo, who's just been retired. He's, he did you proud in a, a couple of Everest. And let's talk about the pressure of getting these horses, getting these sprinters to such a big day like the Everest is now and has mm. so quickly become on the Australian, you know, turf calendar. What is it, the richest turf race in the world? It's worth $20 million. I mean, is there a different pressure now with these two horses between now and three weeks away? Yeah, of course there is, and you, you could... Try and convince yourself that it's just another other, another race, but it's not. No, the the amount of prize money up for grabs here is is um, disproportionate <laughs> to anything else you do. Like if if you know if you, my horses won, I think seven million dollars last year. Well, that's the first prize in this race. So you know you you effectively could double your double your wages in one day for the year. Um, that brings with it um, a level of pressure. Now I'm not I'm not overthinking it, but. If they were if they were cars performing in a car race, I'd have them tucked away in the garage. Can't do that. I've got to work them every day. I've got to make sure that they're at their best and you know they're uh, they're flesh and blood. There's um there's dangers in that. There's uh, there's so many things that can go wrong. Again, you can't be focused on that. Just do your best. Got a great team around me, um, right from the farriers, chiropractor, you know, dentists, vets, the strappers, everything, uh, track riders. They're all there. We've all got our job to do. We all know what our job is. Um. I'm there sort of, you know, pulling the strings and trying to orchestrate the best possible result we can get. But, yeah, that's right. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of pressure, but we don't want to concentrate too much on that. Try and enjoy it. Been here before. Um, hopefully we can get the result. Joe, one of the interesting factors we think about it is the, the number of owners he's got. It's, you know, I see these syndicates, you see the... The, the more or less the little people competing with the Coolmores and the, and the major syndicates, and 
it 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 still gives me a buzz to think that uh, you know in Australia we, we've still got we've still got this access to horses and access in this case to a potentially great horse. Yeah, no, no, it's fantastic, and I think the Everest is the best of um, the best of everything in racing. It was touted early on, and still is by some people as being an elite an elitist race, but it's it, it's not that at all. Um, if you've got a good horse, and you could you could um, you know if if Takeovers Hargett was around, he was you know trained by a taxi driver from Queanbeyan and bought for fifteen hundred dollars. Well, if he was around now, he'd be running this Everest, and it brings together that. I'm not going to say battling group of owners, my, but yeah, there's mums and dads and regular people in my horse, um, both my horses. They've come together with two two different groups, um, Newgate, the stud, um, and then Max Whitby and Neil Werrick for Private Eye, and they're wealthy. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend I know, you know what they're worth, but you know they're, they're successful people in business and in racing, and they get to combine with my groups of owners to to compete in the, the biggest race. So I, I, as I think the Everest is a fantastic concept and you're right, you know, Australia provides that opportunity for people to be involved in, which don't seem so much, you know, in, in Europe and in England, um, that opportunity for people to be involved at the highest level. Joe, we wish you all the best at Royal Randwick on Saturday and, of course, in the next couple of weeks getting both horses, Think About It and Private Eye, into the Everest safe and sound and calm. Great. Thank you very much. I'll try and remain calm. Joe Pryor talking to us on Hoof on the Till. And, Helen, I'll give you an anecdote regarding uh, Think About It. The first time I ever heard about Think About It. Now, there's a character, the race is uh, known as Happy Max. Now, Happy Max gets up at something like 3 a.m. on work mornings to work at Joe Pride's stable. He catches two trains and a bus to start work at 5. Now, Happy Max come onto my radar wearing an Eduardo cap. This is about three years ago when Eduardo was flying, but then was it 12 months ago or so? I saw there was there was no Eduardo hat. He had this other, other hat on. I didn't recognise that. I said, Max, what's what's the, the other hat? I said, this is a good horse. I said, what's his name? He said, think about it. I said, what do you talk about? I am thinking about it. I'm asking what he's. He said, that's the name of the horse. I said, I've never heard of it, Max. He said, but you will. So it just goes to show you, Helen, all, all Max's aren't grumpy old men. Let's turn our attention away from that big race day at Royal Randwick and look a little south because there is an under-bubbling story surrounding Sandown Racecourse that's been, you know, probably bubbling away for several years now, but it looks like it could be coming to a head because there's a very important vote coming up in terms of board members on the Melbourne Racing Club, and that, of course, oversees what happens with Sandown. And one of the big questions is, will Sandown continue to be a racetrack? Shelley Hancocks, who our listeners will know as one of Australia's prominent racing syndicators and I remember as a prominent racing journalist, is with us again now from Melbourne. Shelley, good to have you back on Hoof. Good morning, Helen. Good to be with you and, of course, to be with my old sparring partner, Max. Yes, well, he is there and he is interested in this because his view is that 
Sandown is likely to be sold, but what is the latest from the city? Everyone is waiting to see what the new board elections do to the Melbourne Racing Club board because there are four positions up for uh, re-election and three of the nominees are very pro-retaining Sandown Park as a race course. The racing industry, as in the participants in the racing industry, as in trainers and jockeys and owners, are all horrified at the thought that we might lose Sandown uh, as a race course because there are two tracks at Sandown and both give every horse every chance in a race and they're both fantastic uh, tracks for horses. But the problem is the Melbourne Racing Club are very keen to redevelop uh, the stands and the whole infrastructure at Caulfield into a $300 million, um, really a, a place that you can have multiple functions going on all the time. But to do that, they need to push their plan to get rid of Sandown as a race course. And uh, uh, the figures being touted around is the redevelopment of Sandown as uh, an urban hub would net them something like $3.5 billion. There are over, I think they've worked it out, there are more than 7,000 home sites that could be could be built, plus all the infrastructure that goes with a new suburb. And, of course, that $3.5 billion would be very handy for the Melbourne Racing Club. But isn't that one of the issues, Shelley? I mean, certainly the Age newspaper in Melbourne is reporting it more as a local planning issue rather than a, a racetrack issue, a racing industry issue. Do they have the infrastructure? Is it a wise move to put that many new houses and something like 16 or 20,000 new people in that area? Well, I, I doubt that it is, but from from a racing purist point of view, I, it's the actual loss of the those two court or the Sandown Racecourse and the, the two tracks that encompasses the loss of that to the industry. It, it's it's incredible that they could even think about. You know, I mean, I, I think I'd close down Caulfield before I'd close down. Sandown, but of course Caulfield is Crown Land, whereas the Melbourne Racing Club owns Sandown, so they could get rid of both the two race tracks and the car racing track, and um, you know forge ahead. It is, of course, subject to planning permission from the Greater Dandenong City Council, but a lot of people think that the Dandenong City Council are very keen to do this, and it may well, at the end of the day, come back to the Melbourne Racing Club board and the Melbourne Racing Club members who actually get to have a vote on whether uh, racing remains or, or proceeds in the future at Sandown. Shelley, 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 I, I do hope I'm wrong here because um, uh, Sunday will be the first anniversary. Twelve months ago on Sunday, I've made my first visit to Sandown. It was a wonderful experience, great racing surface, it took me back to the good old days of racing. There was vibrance in the betting ring. There were people there. This is what racing was. This is what racing should have been. I was fortunate enough. It's the first time I saw I wish I win. And it looked a wonderful experience. But Sandown's gone. There's too many people going to get too much money out of this. And and look, we in the racing, we can say it shouldn't go and it won't go, but it will. I'm afraid it will. I've seen Rosebury go. I've seen others go. Uh, I think Canterbury will go in Sydney, but hopefully not in my time. But oh, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be so confident about Sandown lasting that long. And you could talk about councils. You can talk about votes. The big bucks will kick in and, alas, racing 
or lose another prized asset. Oh, look, Max, I, I don't disagree with you on that. Uh, I just hope it does not come to fruition. And, and, and one would hope that um, Racing Victoria even would, would say to Melbourne Racing Club, you know, this is absolutely ludicrous to get rid of such a, a wonderful racing asset. But you're probably right. I mean, you go back um, 20, 30 years and... Uh, the VRC held a lot of land around the Werribee, right, what, what is the Werribee Race Course and Quarantine Centre. They had a lot of land there, but they flogged it off for urban development. And so now sort of Werribee sort of sitting, has very little land and just that badly configurated, badly contoured uh, flat race course in the middle of it. Shelley, this is obviously uh, a story, an issue we can follow, but just quickly, isn't there a compromise position there? I mean, isn't there... Some argument that the track, the race track, and certainly the grandstand, which I believe is heritage listed, can be saved, and some land around the track can be used for new development. Helen, I would have thought that's the most logical position to take. There's enough land there that they could they could sell that off and and get their and get the um, the required money for their redevelopment at, at at Caulfield. And and again, that's going to be subject to planning permission. And there's a lot of um, angst and, and anti-redevelopment re- uh, sentiment in the local Caulfield community about that at the moment. So, you know, hopefully you know, wise, wise heads will prevail and they'll retain the racetracks and, and, and you'll, we'll see an urban development springing up around the uh, track because there is an awful lot of land there that that is of no use to anybody except for urban development. But Sandown has so many positives for race horses that you just wonder at wanting to um, develop the whole lot. Shelley Hancock's on Hoof on the Till. And, Max, finally, we've been talking about a horse that you think could become not just a, a terrific sprinter in Australia but perhaps the world in Think About It. And I think it's worth noting the passing of a former top sprinter, in a horse called Magnus, and he became an even better sire in Victoria. He's been standing at Widden Stud and before that uh, Sun Stud for, well, well over a decade, maybe 15 years, and, and he had an, an extraordinary winner's to runner's rate of something like 72% and one of the trainers that had a really amazing affinity with his progeny, with his offspring, is our final guest this week, Robbie Griffiths. Yeah, good morning. Thanks, Helen. Thank you. Now... It is amazing, isn't it, the run this horse had as a sprinter himself. I mean, he wasn't the best of his era because he was in a pretty hot era, wasn't he? He was up against horses like Takeover Target, Miss Andretti, Gold Edition. Yeah, and Weekend Hustler. He was probably one of the best horses we've seen, Weekend Hustler, and he kept he ran so many, you know, runner-up and placings to him. So had he had been in a different era, he probably would have been, you know, five, six-time Group 1 winner and performed so well in Europe too, you know, running third in the King's Stand. So he's... Uh, he could travel and he could run. He could handle all conditions winning on the wet in the galaxy. So he, he's been a terrific racehorse, very underrated as a racehorse. And to have that, you know, ability to run in all of those uh, different climates and different countries and perform so well everywhere he went, um, I think that, you know, that's been fantastic. You know, he's, he's pushed that onto his uh, progeny, the, the versatility in track conditions and, and things like that. So, yeah, for him to do that, um, you know, uh, he was fantastic. Trained in Melbourne, won the Galaxy in Sydney, performed so well in Singapore and, and, and Ascot. So he was a terrific racer. And as a stallion, 525 winners to date, including four Group 1 winners and 17 horses that have won a million dollars. Now, you've got two of those horses in your stable or you've had them and this gets to your 
quite unusual, quite unique affinity with his family. What was it about Magnus and his progeny, Robbie, that that so clicked with you? Oh, look, we loved him as a racehorse and, you know, we loved Flying Spur. We had luck with Flying Spur and he had Flying Spur's look and he had, you know, his beautiful family of Scandinavia and, you know, so that, that family is fantastic and, you know, I'm very much into line breeding and mix and crosses and things like that. So Peter Ford, who helps me in that area, uh, he was a very good match for our mare that we just put to stud uh, flourishing and not a single doubt mare. So when you put them two together, you get a duplication of uh, snippets, mum, easy date, um, through singles bar, not a single doubt, uh, female line, plus a lot of other duplications as well of Danehill, et cetera. So we thought that was a really good cross, and that was the beginning of Hal Orson, you know. And he's come out and been one of those million-dollar winners. So um, having one respect and appreciation for Magnus's ability, his pedigree, and thinking of being compatible with um, our broodmare, that started the ball rolling, and we were so happy with him. We continued to buy them and breed them and so on, and we've ended up with two of his, uh, his best uh, million-dollar winners. So it's been been a fantastic journey. It's intriguing, Robbie, to, to hear about um, how you, you, you blend or blended Magnus with brood mares because uh, with so many stallions, you know, the, the mares are, are a vital aspect of what is produced and you, you see stallions perhaps with ability, but they aren't serving the right mares. And you would talk about nips, nicks and tucks there, but uh, obviously that's the skill of it to get the value out of breeding from a horse like Magnus. Yeah, well, I'm sure that, you know, there's a lot of stands that don't uh, succeed in different environments because they're not always compatible to what is is there uh, at the time. And we've seen some stands very successful overseas and not in Australia and vice versa. So I think that um, that's a big element of, of all, you know, stallions and broodmares for that factor. So we uh, we're very particular on on what we think suits the mating and um, and doing that, he was a perfect uh, a perfect cross. So, you know, so it just worked to go to him and, and then he proved to be a success. So uh, that, that just, you know, rubber stamped it all and confirmed uh, what we are doing was the right thing. Robbie, how will Magnus be remembered as a stallion in Victoria? How important has he been? I think he's been incredibly important to the Victorian economy because a lot of our a lot of our stands get whizzed off to the hunter, um, and he stayed here. He's maintained a, a dominance of winners um, in all conditions, all distances. And I think that, you know, there's so many people that, you know, we all shoot for the stars uh, and want to be there, but to have horses that can win races and be durable on all conditions and all distances and is something that we all want to achieve. And he's achieved that for so many so many people there's very few magnuses that don't succeed on the track and it's just a level of what success they get to so for those that uh want to uh, buy a ticket in the lottery so to speak he's been such a great serviceman to them and i think that he's going to be uh, very sadly missed um because the stands like that are very very hard to find max i have to in the interest of full disclosure say here that we bred a, a filly by magnus and Robbie Griffiths just happens to have her in the stables right now, don't you, Robbie? Absolutely, Helen. And we'll, you know, in the best interest of protecting the uh, owner's uh, uh, discretion here and uh, privacy, we won't mention her race name yet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she's a lovely filly and she's got the uh, right sort of nicks and cross in her pedigree. So we're 
waiting for her to develop, but we're looking forward to her uh, carrying on the legacy. Let's hope she can, Robbie, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Max. Robbie Griffiths talking to us from his stables in Melbourne, and, of course, Robbie is the current president of the Australian Trainers Association. And that's it for this week's podcast, but hopefully you'll join us again next week when one of the issues we'll tackle is early two-year-old racing. 